All right, hey guys, it's good to be back with you this week. Um, I'm recording uh, recording this one later than I've done anyone. It is Saturday night, and it's getting dark, and I'm just getting to recording because, you know, Melissa has a school here, and I am living in a disgusting Petri dish of toddler germs, and it's really gross, and um, both of us got pretty sick this week, and so... I've just been beat all week, and um, you know I am still not really out of it, but I think I'm good enough. So if there's a lot of jump cuts in this sermon, it's because I went to go blow my nose or something or cough a bunch in the bathroom. Um, yeah, so anyway, we're going to be back in the book of Luke today. Um, so if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 9. And I called this sermon um, The King's Feast. And the reason I called it, we're going to be talking about the feeding of the 5,000 today. We're going to be talking about food. And I think it's no surprise to anybody uh, listening that uh, I like food. Um, I got a couple of extra COVIDs here, you know, from ordering in all all year. But I'm really excited um, to be back and to be able to go to my favorite restaurants again and to be able to see, uh, to be able to actually sit down and eat at some of these places. Tommaso's is a big one, right? Um, look, if you haven't been to Tommaso's yet, it's because you're not listening to the sermons, right? Um, you're not a holy and a good person, right? You got to go to Tommaso's, right? It's in the sermon. Uh, Kearney and Broadway. Not the best part of town, but you know, the food is amazing. Best Italian restaurant in the world. Well, maybe Italy has one or two that's better, but you know what I mean. Um, Gallardo's, my favorite Mexican place or sushi place. Um Anyway, you know, I talk about food a lot. I love food. Um, I eat better than most ancient kings would have eaten, you know. I, I think about that a lot. You know, they didn't have Tommaso's in ancient Babylon, right? Like, sometimes I'll eat a meal with three different kinds of meat in it. That never would have happened in the ancient world. Um, and this is how spoiled we are, too. That um, in our language, the word vanilla means plain. Have you ever thought about that? It's like a pretty, back in the ancient world. Sorry, would have been a pretty expensive spice or, you know, would have would have been pretty important, right? Vanilla. We just say, oh, it's it's just, it's so vanilla, right? Um, in our world, too, when we talk about food, we have to talk about how much food we have. We have so much food in the West. Um, have you ever looked at a full fridge? You know, you get up at the middle of the night and you're hungry or whatever. Okay, am I the only one that eats in the middle of the night? Shh, be quiet, you know. Open the fridge. There's a full fridge of food, full pantry of food. You go, ah, there's nothing to eat. Right, you ever done that? I know I'm not the only one that's done that. Um, we food in the ancient world and the the context that that um, the gospel stories are told, people approached food in a very different way than you know we approach food. Right, we're um, a bunch of overeaters who live in the West and have a lot of variety and all this stuff. But that's not how it was in the ancient world. Um, in the ancient world, you couldn't store food for very long. So if you killed an animal to eat it, you had to eat the whole animal like pretty quick. So you would usually invite people to do that with you. Um, where your next meal was going to come from was a huge, um, huge deal, right? People a lot of times didn't know where's my next meal going to come from. And that still happens today, but not on the scale that it did in the ancient world. Today, we're going to read the famous story of the feeding of the 5,000. And this miracle is super interesting for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of layers to this story. Um, but one big reason is that other than the um, the resurrection, the Easter story, this is the only miracle that's told in all four Gospels. Think about that. The only one. Not the raising of the widow, 
uh, son at Nain, not Jairus' daughter being raised, not Lazarus being raised, not healing blind people or lepers or uh, walking on water or calming the sea, right? Not even the transfiguration. What? This is the only one. This is the one. Why? Well, one big reason is this miracle couldn't be denied. Um, there were thousands and thousands of witnesses, um, but also... Uh, it addressed a huge need in the ancient world, the idea of food scarcity and where is my next meal going to come from. And so um, you, you might know some things about this story, but let's try to peel that back and let's look at this story and let's ask this question. What does Jesus mean to teach us today um, about himself through this story? So we're in Luke chapter 9. If you want to grab your Bible, follow along. We're going to start um, in verse 10. On their return, the apostles told them all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Bethsaida. Hard to say with a cold. Anyway, they returned, the apostles, from their, um, their missionary journey that they had been on. We talked about that all last week. So now they're back and um, they've been traveling around. And guess what, guys? They're exhausted. And so... They start to do sort of a debrief with Jesus, and they're talking about what it is that um, uh, they did, and they're telling them about the healing and all that sort of stuff. And uh, they they decide to go on this little retreat. They're going to get away, and uh, which is a really great example that rest is godly. Um, too many great sort of pastors and heroes of the faith and missionaries and people just completely burned out and didn't. Um, fulfill their potential. Guys like John Calvin, um, George Whitfield was like a, held a crazy schedule. Um, a lot of these guys died really early because they didn't take care of themselves. They didn't rest well, right? So if you want to pause the video right now, uh, go take a nap, uh, finish it tonight. Jesus is cool with it, right? Jesus says naps are godly. All right, verse 11. So they're going, they want to take a nap, they want to relax. But that's not what they actually get to do. Verse 11, when the crowds learned it, learned of it, they followed him and welcomed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God. And he cured those who had need of healing. So the crowds find out where Jesus is. And I love this, right? He's trying to have this retreat with his disciples. He's trying to get away. And uh, what happens? Uh, the crowd shows up and he welcomes them anyway. There is nothing more exhausting um, as a parent, right, than being sick like we were this week, although it's not that bad. We've had way worse, right? But being sick when your kids are also sick at the same time, and you're having to take care of kids, but at the same time, you just need a nap, right? And finally, you hit the pillow, and you think, okay, the kids are down. I'm going to get some sleep. I'm going to get some rest, finally. And then one of your kids starts crying, and um, you have to get back up and you have to, okay, I don't get to rest right now. That's basically the situation um, that Jesus is in, right? Uh, him and his guys are trying to have this retreat. They're trying to relax, but the crowd follows them uh, when he thinks they're going to get a break, right? When they think they're going to get a break. The crowds come and it says this, he welcomed them. In Mark, it says something different. It says he had compassion on them. I love that. Um, we're reading Luke to find out who Jesus is, to strip away all of our preconceived notions and all that stuff. And we're just asking this question. What is the gospel of Luke? What does the gospel of Luke tell us about who Jesus is? And um, that's a huge telling point of who Jesus is. 
Um, he is compassionate, right? He is compassionate when I probably wouldn't be. Um, it's, it's a great sort of insight into the heart of Jesus. So how does he have compassion? Well, again, it's the same twofold ministry that he sent the disciples on, right? To take care of physical needs. Um, and then at the same time to proclaim the kingdom of God, right? Um, <clears throat> sorry, let me drink a little of my coffee. See if I can get through this. Boy, I'm having trouble talking. This cold, man, this one really got me. It was just all of a sudden I thought I was fine. And then Tuesday night, it was like, boom, tons of cold, you know. <clears throat> anyway, um, he was taking care of the physical needs and they were proclaiming the kingdom of God, right? He was taking care of their body and he was taking care of their soul. And so while this is going on, there's this big ministry day happening. All of a sudden it starts to get late. Verse 12. Now the day began to wear away and the 12 came and said to him, Send the crowd away and go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and to get provisions, for we are uh, we're here in a desolate place. So the the situation is they're there, they're doing the healing, all this stuff is happening, but it's starting to get later and later and later, and the disciples are starting to worry, and um, they're starting to look at the sun going down in the sky, and they're looking at how many people are here, and there's not enough food for all these people, and you know they're just trying to be practical. And so they go and they talk to Jesus and they say, Jesus, send these people away so that they can go and they can get something to eat. They can find somewhere to stay. Um, you know, they're just, they're trying to think ahead, I guess. And so Jesus says to them in verse 13, um, yeah, verse 13, but he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. So, Jesus commands them, right? I love this. They come to him with this, you know, this realistic concern. And Jesus just says to them, well, you give them something to eat. Imagine this from the disciples' perspective. They think they're being reasonable. They think they're being cautious. And they think they're doing what they can to take care of the crowd. And Jesus just turns around and just says, feed all of these people. Feed this gigantic crowd. Imagine the shock in their eyes. When they start to think, well, what does he mean by that? Now, did Jesus really mean for them to feed the crowd? There's a couple of options. The first option is um, he gave the command to the disciples to show them that they couldn't do it and that they needed him uh, how much to show them how much they needed Jesus, right? That's the first option. The second option is that they just got back from their miracle tour, right? Maybe Jesus genuinely expected them to do what he's about to do right? You just did all these miracles. Why don't you break some loaves and some fish, right? Either way, the disciples are completely baffled by this command. And they come to Jesus and they say, look, we've got five loaves and two fish. It would have been, um, I think one of the other gospels says it's barley loaves, which was just sort of the plain food of the day. And a couple of fish because they're right near the Sea of Galilee. Okay, again, we think about food very differently than people who were the original readers of this text would have thought, and who the people in this story would have thought, like how they thought of food. D.A. Carson, um, in writing about this, he pointed out that um, in the ancient world, basically, almost every meal for the people in this region would have been fish and these barley loaves. This was the two staples of the diet. Um, it was really almost the only thing that these people ate. But how much did they have of this sort of just normal food? How much did they have? Well, enough to feed maybe one family, right? One small family. That's it. And in John, we learned that this was some boy's lunch. 
right? And John's telling of the story. Some kid was like, oh, I have these five loaves and these two fish. Uh, not nearly enough to feed. Look at how big this crowd is. Look at verse 14 here, 14 and 15. For there were about 5,000 men. That's important. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and uh, had them, sorry, and they did so and had them sit down. So Jesus now, or the crowd, first off, the crowd is about 5,000, but you, did you catch that? 5,000 men, not family, like um, not uh, 5,000 people, right? So we, we can... Um, we can guess, right? There were men, women. They probably brought their families. They didn't drop them off at preschool or whatever and come spend the day with Jesus. So we're probably looking at something more like ten to 15,000 people. Some people say as much as 20. I don't know. It doesn't say, but there's a lot of people here, right? And so Jesus tells his disciples, okay, take these you know, thousands and thousands of people and organize them. Get them into groups of 50 each. Um, a major theme in this miracle that we're reading is... Um, the provision of God, that God provides for his people. And in the Old Testament, there are a handful of examples that commentators and theologians will point to here that says um, what Jesus was doing was he was organizing the people in this crowd the same way God organized the people into groups, like in the book of Numbers and different places um, in the Old Testament. And um, because this is he's organizing them and then he's going to provide for them and this probably is an allusion to that right and so they get the crowd organized at this point imagine being one of the disciples they have no idea what's going on they gave the couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish and they gave them to Jesus and Jesus says okay have everybody sit down and organize them but for what Jesus right but they did it and they were obedient and i love that and then verse 16 the actual miracle i love how um the miracle is almost not even described. Watch this, verse 16. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to be set before the crowd. I love that, right? It just, he first he says the blessing. There was a customary prayer um, that they said before dinner, um, during the first century in Jewish houses. We don't know if this is what Jesus said, but it's probably something very similar. Blessed are you, uh, Lord, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings out bread from the earth. Right? That's what they would pray. And Jesus looked up to heaven and he, he prayed this prayer or something very similar. Um, and then all of a sudden, he starts handing out the fish. Now, or sorry, handing out the bread. Now, Think about this from the disciples' perspective. One of the things I love to do is try to imagine what it would be like to be one of the characters in the story. So let's pick a disciple. Who do we want to be today? Um, I don't know. Say James, right? This is a random one, right? So we're going to be James, John's brother. And so all this is happening, and um, Jesus says, let's organize the people into groups. So first, he's part of this group that starts walking around and starts telling people, everybody pair off. We're going to get into groups of about 50 um, and we want you to sit in sort of clusters, and he's kind of out there helping. That takes 15, 20 minutes to get everybody down. Comes back to Jesus. Jesus stands up in front of the whole crowd now who's hushed. But even people in the back probably couldn't hear the prayer. This is a big crowd. They can hear Jesus talking, and he stands up and he prays his prayer. And then he sits down, and he starts breaking uh, the bread. <coughs> now, it's easy to forget the scale of this miracle. So, James, we're James, right? Let's let's turn around, close your eyes, turn around, let's look at the crowd. 
let's say, let's pick a number. Let's, well, let's make it even number here because there's 12 disciples. We'll say 12,000 people, right? Families and men and women, children, people, people who had been healed, people who were listening to the gospel being preached. They're all there. You look at this massive crowd, right? 12,000 people is about on a normal, um, if you've ever been to a Giants game, not during COVID, that's about a third, maybe a fourth of the amount of people that would be at a Giants game. Right, So think of a third of the crowd of a Giants game. Or if you've been to an A's game, that's about two or three times as many people as show up to an A's game. So imagine an A's game crowd and there's twice as many people there. Okay, so think about this crowd, right? There's 12,000 people. I love ragging on the A's. By the way, the Giants aren't that terrible right now. We have the second best record in the league um, behind the stupid Dodgers, of course. But uh, Anyway, back to this, right? So <clears throat> you're looking at this crowd. 12,000 people. They're organized into these groups of 50. Now, if there's 12,000 disciples, I'm sorry, 12,000 people, 12 disciples, that means as the disciples are passing out bread, they have to give bread each to a thousand people. Imagine how long it would take for you to hand lunch to a thousand different people. Um, they're organized into groups of 50, which means <coughs> that's 20 groups per disciple. They would have to go to 20 different groups with a couple of baskets, right? And let's say that each group of 50 needs five baskets to feed each group. That means that you're, you, James, right? Uh, think about that. James is walking from group to Jesus, handing out bread, coming back and getting more, handing out bread, coming back and getting more a hundred times. Think about how long that would take. That would take hours. And all 12 disciples are doing this. They're going in all the different directions and people are up on the hill and they're down the hill and they're all over the place. This is a massive miracle. And what were the, I love to think about this. What were the disciples thinking during this miracle? Many, as I was thinking about this this week, many life-changing events um, happen quickly. And you don't really have time to think about it during the event, but you have time to ponder it after the event, right? A car accident, something like that. I don't know. Like when I got hit by a Jeep Grand Cherokee. Happened pretty quick, right? All of a sudden, I was flying across the intersection. And then I had months to hear everybody try to talk me out of riding a motorcycle. It's not going to happen, guys. Um, <clears throat> oh, by the way, completely unrelated. If you want to pray for me tomorrow, I have a doctor's appointment. I had my MRI on my back, which it turns out is completely messed up. So um, I don't know if I'm going to need surgery or what. But anyway, if you guys want to pray for that, that's great. Uh, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah. Anyway, so a lot of life-changing moments happen quickly, um, and then you have time afterwards to think about it. This was not one of those moments. This was a life-changing moment for these disciples, except that it took hours and hours going back and forth a hundred times, handing out <clears throat> bread, coming back to Jesus, getting a refill, handing out bread, coming back and getting a refill. And every time James comes back, and he looks at Jesus, he waits in the line with the other disciples, maybe there's two or three in front of him, and he has his basket or whatever he was using to pass out the bread, um, you know, comes back to Jesus. And Jesus is still got that first loaf, and he's still breaking it in half and putting pieces, and he's filling up these baskets. And while this was happening, they had time to process and watch. And you can imagine, you'd go back to one group, and you'd say, man, I wonder if he's still going to be breaking this bread. And you would turn around and come back. Walk up the hill, Jesus is sitting there, waiting your little line with the other disciples, come up, and he is still breaking the bread. He is still, this miracle goes on and on and on. And as you can imagine, this event wasn't silent. It's not like they, everybody had, 
Um, actually, that's how you know it's a great meal is when nobody talks. But you can imagine 12,000 people, right, murmuring and talking amongst themselves. And I'll bet that while this was happening, you're waiting in that line. You know, James, you're waiting in that line. And Peter's in front of you, and he's making jokes with Jesus, right? And he comes back for the 70th time, and he says to Jesus something like, you know, hey, while you're doing the bread, could you get me a Diet Coke too or something like that, you know? And Jesus laughs and says, no, you know, I don't do Coke, just the bread and fish, right? And he hands him back more fish, something like that, right? Uh, like things were happening for hours during this miracle, and and um, there was also probably interactions with the crowd, right? Have you ever had to tell the same story like a million times because different groups of people want to know what happened? I'm like, hey, what was it like planting a church a couple of weeks before COVID started, right? the COVID lockdown started or, um, you know, whatever it is in your life. And you just like, oh man, I've already explained this like a hundred times. Well, I bet the disciples had to do that too. They would go and they would hand a basket of bread and say, everybody eat up. And people would start to gather around and take the bread and the stuff, you know, take it all out of the basket and set it down in front of them. Where'd you get all this? <coughs> Sorry, man, this cold. And the people would say, man, where'd you get all this stuff? And you, you know, James, you as James, right, you'd have to explain. Jesus is over there, and he started with five loaves and two fish, and he is still breaking this stuff off. People would be like, you know, I bet some people didn't believe. And so, you know, you go, James, you go, go look, right? He's over there. You can watch him do it. It's, he's, he's only halfway done, right? There's still a lot of people in this crowd. He's still going. It's already been three hours, but maybe he'll be doing this for a little bit longer. It's, it's a crazy story to really put yourself in the story and think about, man, what must this have been like to be one of these disciples watching this happen? What was it like to be a member of the crowd sitting there enjoying this? Um, you know, it was a plain food. It was just what they ate every day. But I bet Jesus made it extra delicious, um, like the good wine, right? I bet it was like that. Man, it's the best barley bread I've ever had, right? Um, and if that's not if that's not enough, uh, just to think about all that stuff, think about this. Um, a bunch of people had seconds. Right, so all those numbers that I just gave you, going back a hundred times, that's just assuming you did one basket per, you know, one, uh, you know, uh, trip to each group of fifty. Right, um, man, this is insane. Um, or you know, a couple of trips to each group of fifty, but you know, just for one helping per person. Right, that's um, not what happened. It says here, look, they a bunch of people like had more than enough. Right, verse seventeen, and they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up uh, 12 baskets of broken pieces, right? So they, they picked up what was left over and it all added up into 12 baskets. I love um, the precision of that, right? Because think about Jesus is feeding 12,000 people. 12,000 people had exactly enough to eat so that they were stuffed. And then there was enough that each disciple got to take basically, basically like a backpack full of food with them to go. Right, so Jesus's precision, I love that. But it also shows the extent of this miracle. 12, I mean, we're using the number 12,000, could have been as many as 20,000 people ate and had enough food from just a couple of, um, a couple of, uh, loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Um, now one more part from this section where it says all had enough to eat. It's really easy to, um, pass over stuff like that. Sorry. <coughs> really easy to pass over, you know, phrases like that, but that's a really interesting phrase. Luke points out that everybody had enough. Um, in the Old Testament, the laws of purity and, you know, ritual cleanness and uh, purity laws and all that stuff made sure that only certain people 
participated in the religious activity, and certain people didn't, and that was kind of the point. But here, these people are organized the same way that the Old Testament people of God were organized, um, and they were provided for the same way the Old Testament people of God were provided for. But who's a part of this group? Everybody, right? Everyone and anyone. All kinds of people came. They were healed. They heard the teaching, right? They had a, a delicious meal. They were fed. Um, but again, it's that upside down kingdom. There's not people here excluded. Anybody that came to Jesus was able to receive and participate in this miracle. And I love that. But let's start to think about this miracle. What's the point of it, right? That's the end of the story right there. But what's the point of this? Like, is this just a miracle about provision? Is that what this miracle is all about? Should we look at this story and then say, well, anytime you're hungry, God will provide for you. Well, the problem with that is sometimes Christians starve to death, right? That's not true. In the history of the world, that's not been true, right? God usually does, and he provides and he loves his people. Um, but sometimes his plan is something else, right? So here's the problem with just looking at this as a miracle of provision. Um, over in John's telling of this story, so you know there's four Gospels, and a lot of them tell the same stories. And what I said earlier was, this is the only miracle that shows up in all four Gospels besides the resurrection. Um, and we talked about some reasons for that. There's a lot of reasons for that. But um, there's a whole section that Luke omits in his Gospel that John puts in. And it's really interesting. I don't know why Luke omitted it. Maybe I'll ask him when I'm dead. But... Um, he doesn't put this in, but at the end of this miracle, right after this, Jesus walks on water. That part's not in the book of Luke. And then after the walking on water, some people come up to Jesus and start talking about the miracle of the bread, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And what Jesus does is he explains this miracle. And so usually when we want to um, try to figure out what something in the Bible means and Jesus explains it, like the parable of the sower, we should go with his explanation, right? So if you have your Bible, jump over and turn to John chapter 6. We're going to read a little bit from right there. Okay, let's look at verses 22, and we're going to read. We're just going to keep reading here. So on the next day, so the day after the, the walking on water and all that stuff, and the 5,000. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got in their boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So they're confused about the walking on water. How did you get to the other side of the boat? We saw you, the disciples left you, and now you're, you know. So anyway, that part's not that important for us. Um Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So Jesus says to them, look, I know why you're here. I know why you're trying to find me. Um, it's not because of deep spiritual things, right? It's because you liked the bread. You liked the feeding of the 5,000. You thought that was cool, and you want me to do some more like that, right? You want, you're looking for physical nourishment. Verse 27, did not, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, do not work, Jesus continues, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So when they come to Jesus and they basically say, dude, we want more bread, do it again, right? Feed again, feed us all again. And Jesus is saying, look, that bread, that whole miracle, that, that was cool. 
But that's not your biggest problem. That's not the deepest thing that's happening with you that you really need to be worried about. You have a deeper hunger than physical hunger. Your spiritual hunger and your spiritual problem is exponentially bigger for you. And remember, he's not saying this to us Americans who can drive up to McDonald's and get food whenever we want. He is saying this to people who knew real, actual hunger, right? Not us, uh, all of us who put on 15 extra pounds during COVID, right? He's not talking to us. He's talking to these people. These people knew hunger. And a lot of them, they knew poverty. And Jesus was saying, yeah, that's true. You're hungry, but that's not your deepest hunger, right? Your spiritual hunger is a way bigger need that you need to address. Now, what does he mean by spiritual hunger? When he's talking about this and this bread of, um, you know, wait, how does he put it there in verse 27? Um, You're looking for food that perishes, right? But the food that, this is how he puts it, endures to eternal life, right? Deep, deep down, when he's talking about spiritual hunger, there's this sense that we all know, and I talk about this a lot in sermons. We know that something is wrong, and the gospel tells us, right? The gospel story tells us what it is. It's our separation from our Creator. We all long to be back in that relationship with the Trinity. Um, that's the spiritual hunger that Jesus is talking about. But how can that hunger be satisfied? Um, this is a great passage, this whole thing where Jesus explains this. We're not going to get completely into it. Maybe someday I'll get to teach you all the book of John. Um, I've taught it before. It's really fantastic. It's actually probably my favorite gospel, but um, it's a little more in-depth. I don't know. Anyway, we'll get to it someday. Um, but for now, we're not going to get into this whole thing. We're going to skip down um, to verse 35. Look at this. Jesus says to them, so how then can this spiritual hunger be filled? And they go back and forth, talk about some man and stuff. But Jesus says to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's the answer. Do you see? They were coming to get something from Jesus. Jesus is the one who can create bread, and he can feed the multitude, right? He can feed these crowds. And in John's telling of, in John 6 here, in John's telling of the feeding of the 5,000, there's actually a part where it says they tried to take Jesus and make him the king of Israel, right? And they want him to become king. If anybody can just provide for his people like this, well, maybe he should be the king, right? That's what they're thinking. He's the world's greatest bread machine. And so Jesus, though, when the crowds come back to him looking for more, he says, no, 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 we're not going to do this again because really we need to go. He's like, that was just a a small taste of something deeper. I want to take you deeper. Um, You don't need something from me. You don't need bread from me. This is what he says. Um, You need me. That's the difference. You don't need something from me. You need me, the bread of life. You don't need barley bread. You need the bread of life. They were looking right in front of them, right? Like I've used this illustration before too, but terrible drivers always look right in front of their car. Good drivers always look down the road and are planning ahead. Jesus is saying, you guys are living like those terrible drivers just looking right in front of the hood of your car. You're looking down and what do you see? You're a misic your immediate physical needs. Um, But Jesus says, I need you to look down the road. I need you to see that there's something bigger going on here. There's something deeper happening. Um, In Greek, this is really interesting. In Greek, there are two different words for the word that we use in are translated in the English Bible life. Um, There's, there's the word bios, which is just life, like simple existence. Um, A leaf has bios, a starfish has bios. And then there's zoe, which means more than that. It means like um, the good life, um, sitting at the pool, right? You ever, <clears throat> you ever been sitting by the pool and, um, you know, they bring you a cocktail or whatever and you've got your Kindle, 
I don't know, that's what I always do at the pool. And uh, Melissa always gives me uh, grief, you know, because I'm usually in jeans and a t-shirt or whatever. But anyway, sitting by the pool and, um, and actually I don't drink cocktails either. So, you know, whatever. But, you know, sitting there and just saying, man, this is a good life. That's Zoe, right? It's, it's the good life. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. You guys are worried about your bios kind of life. You're worried about just your mere existence. And he's saying, there's something better for you here. I don't want you to just exist. I want you to live the good life. And this is, um, uh, this is one thing that we miss when we talk about that phrase, eternal life. We just think, oh, that means life that goes on forever. But it's actually more than that. It's not life that goes on forever. It's the good life that goes on forever. The perfect life goes on forever. And just like bread, the barley bread will sustain your bios. Jesus is saying, me, the bread of life, will sustain your zoe. Do you see that? He's saying, this was a small picture that's something I want to take you deeper. But how does that happen? How is it that he is the bread of life? How does he become the bread of life? Um, well, the answer is through his death. Um, in <clears throat> Everybody in an agrarian, like a farming society, and especially back then, would have known this idea. that uh, it's, And this is something that we don't ever think about, right? If you ask a kid, where does meat come from? Where does food come from? They say, what? The grocery store, right? But if you ask a kid who lives on a farm, where does the steak come from? They'll look out the window and point at a cow. Um, with the exception of maybe just the occasional mineral, like salt or something like that, basically everything that we eat dies so that we can eat it, right? Think about it. What did I have for lunch today? I had a turkey sandwich, um, and let's see what was on it. Uh, so there was turkey. So the turkey, somebody raised the turkey up and then they killed it and they butchered it and then they sold it to Safeway or wherever we bought turkey from. And I bought that turkey, but that turkey had to die for me to eat this sandwich. There was a mustard plant that died. There were some bell peppers that once had life and were growing and some farmer came, chopped them up, you know, cut them up and harvested them. Same with the wheat that made the bread. I'm trying to think what else was on this delicious sandwich. Cucumbers, maybe. Um, all of those things that were once living and vibrant, dead. Why? So I could have a sandwich. Right? Look at the meal here in the feeding of the 5,000. Right? Fish and bread. Right? They both died. The wheat died. The fish died. Why? So that people could continue to live. That's the point. So when Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, I am your spiritual food, he means more than what, um, what he means is I am the one who will sustain your Zoe. I will not just sustain your bios, your existence. I will sustain the good life for you. And how does that happen? I will die to sustain your Zoe, your, the good life. And then you can, right, I will die and you can eat me and then you can enter the good life. It's this metaphor that he uses. And after this, a lot of people leave Jesus. A lot of these folks just walk away and say, I don't want anything to do with this guy. He's crazy. He's talking about eating his flesh and all this stuff. And that's in the rest of John 6. You can go read that. But this miracle is about more than just material provision. It's not just, look, if you pray, God is the, you know, what, what's that phrase from the Old Testament about, you know, he owns the cows on the thousand hills or something like that. Um, he, he's more than that, right? Uh, so if anything you need, you just pray and he'll give it to you. That's the prosperity gospel that I'm always ragging on. But what he says is, no, 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 I, I, for these people, I gave them this bread to help sustain their existence as a small picture of something that I wanted to teach them on a greater level. And that greater level is that I am the bread of life. That's what he says. I will sustain not just your existence, but I will move you from existing to the good life. And, um, 
the 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 bread that they ate was good the bread of life is far better and so just to apply this then to our own lives and just thinking about this there are two questions to close that you need to think about the first is this are you looking for something besides jesus to sustain your zoe to sustain you in the good life um the problem with the crowd again is that they looked at this miracle with a very narrow lens they looked just right in front of their cars and i need more free bread that's what they took out of this miracle they thought if i just had more bread and fish then i would finally move from existing to having the good life i'll move from bios to zoe which is what every human in existence is trying to do to move from existing to having a meaningful life and um Jesus says, the bread that I gave you was good, but bread is not like physical barley bread. It's not enough to move you from existing to the good life, right? Then you'll just have, um, what's that Jim Carrey, is a Jim Carrey quote? I forget the exact quote where he says, I wish everybody could be rich um, so that they can get everything they want and then still be miserable or something like that, right? It's just, we have all these things in our life that we think if I just could get this, then I'd finally move from just existing to, to being happy, to being fulfilled, to being satisfied, to having meaning in my life. And Jesus says, it's, there's nothing else that's going to do it, right? Are you, are you looking? So that's the first question, right? Are you looking for contentment in something other than Jesus? Because if you are, you're going to wake up tomorrow and you're going to be hungry and you're going to feel empty spiritually, right? You don't just need bread. You need the bread of life. And so if there's anything else in your life, there's a lot of good things in life, but none of those things besides Jesus will move you from existing to Zoe, right? From existing to the good life. You're not your job, not your family, not your wife or husband, um, not your favorite hobby, not um, achievement at work and climbing the ladder, not more money. Uh, you know, all these things that we've created in this world sell this message that I can move you from here to here. I can move you from existence to the good life. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm the only one that can truly do that because I am the bread of life. So if that's true, then here's the second question. And this gets a little more in detailed into the story of the Old Testament. And I'll explain this. But the second thing is this. Oh, you, you answered that first question. You know what? I'm not perfect, but generally I try to have Jesus as the bread of life in my life. <clears throat> you know, in my spirituality and in, in my walk, I trust him as my Lord. Right? He is the one who's going to move me from bios to zoe so here's the second question are you coming back to jesus for more bread of life every day um any first century reader familiar with the old testament would have read this entire story and immediately thought of the the story of god providing manna for his people in the desert so after moses and charlton heston right in the exodus and let my people go and they got into the wilderness and <clears throat> all of a sudden they realize they don't have any food and they start to grumble. Man, we should have just died in Egypt or stayed. At least we had food to eat and eat, you know. And so God provides for them manna. And manna, they would wake up every day and they would go out and I think it said it looked like dew. It was like white all over the ground. And they would go out and it was kind of this stuff and they would make bread and, um, you know, God would provide this for them. I forget, what did it say? It was like honey and was it coriander seeds or something? Anyway. And so when the manna first showed up, the first time this happened, everybody, oh man, there's food. They run out and they start hoarding it and they think, man, I got to save as much as I can because I don't know if God's going to be there tomorrow for more manna, 
right? So that, that was the temptation was to just stockpile it. Um, but when they all got back and they got their manna together and they woke up the next day and the ones that they had saved, it was, it would go sour and it would go bad. Um, every, you know, and, but every day that they would wake up, there'd be new manna on the ground. And I think it was only, um, you know, right before the Sabbath, they weren't supposed to pick up man on the Sabbath. So they would save enough for two days and then it wouldn't go bad. But right. That's how bread works. If you don't eat it, it goes bad. Um, Melissa gives me a lot of grief because look, I'll be honest. I use sour cream once. I don't trust it. Sour cream goes bad. It feels like really fast. And all of a sudden it turns and it's like a dollar. I, you know, if we're having tacos, we'll spend a dollar. We'll have sour cream. And then I get rid of it. I can't do it. I don't trust it. I think it's going to go bad. Food goes bad. That's what happens, right? If you don't come back, <clears throat> sorry, this, uh, you know, this food goes bad. I'll tell you another story. One time I was eating one of those Costco muffins at the old house at our old apartment and I woke up or, you know, whatever. And I was, I, unpeel, I peeled a muffin and I went, I remember I sat down, I was watching TV. I was eating this muffin and I was like, man, this muffin is disgusting. It tastes like, like dirt. And I looked down the entire top of the Costco muffin was covered in mold. I'd eaten like half of it probably before I realized it, right? Because, you know, turns out bread goes bad, right? This man, it goes bad. So anybody reading this story would have thought of that, right? This bread uh, that goes bad. So can you see how we can apply to, apply this idea to ourselves? Um, coming to Jesus isn't like uh, you don't just get the bread of life one time and then you're done. Oh, I had the bread of life. I'm heading to eternal life and I'm done now. Um, or... You know, like what's an example of something like that? COVID vaccine, I guess. You get it. You get your shots and then you're done. Although, do we have to get boosters at some point? I don't know. Uh, anyway, you get the idea, right? It's not like a, some sort of a vaccine you get as a kid and you never have to get it again, right? You get you get the illustration, right? Coming to Jesus is like eating bread. You need new bread uh, all the time. And so every day you need to get up and you need to feast on the bread of life. You need to surrender yourself to him and let him nourish your soul, right? Let him... Um, you know, give you the good life. Let him be the one that sustains your zoe. But another sort of hint, as we look through the whole scope of scripture, we want to follow this theme of feasting and God providing for our spiritual nourishment. We want to follow that all the way to the end. And what happens in the book of Revelation is we find out that this this bread of life and, you know, Jesus is what we experience now of Jesus is just the appetizer because eventually the Bible ends with a massive feast right? The marriage supper of the lamb. He's going to get all his people together and not just five or 10 or 12 or 15, 20,000 people, right? But millions and millions, billions. I don't know how many people are followers of Jesus over time. Never done the math. Um, we're going to get together and we're going to have the marriage supper of the lamb. It's like this big wedding feast where we're all joined to Jesus in perfect union. That's Zoe. That's the good life that we're headed towards. Um, that's what happens if we come to Jesus now. And so what I'd encourage you to do as you as you live as a part of the porch and you live um, as a missionary in this city and you try to love the people around you, I want you to get up every day with this in mind. Jesus is the one who will ultimately sustain my soul. He is the bread that my soul needs to move from just existing to the good life, right? He died just like food dies, right? Things that become food, they die so that we can live. Jesus died so that uh, he could become the bread of life, so that he could sustain us and our souls could be nourished. Amen. All right, let's thank him now. Oh, I'm glad I got through the sermon. Let's see. Man, the other thing I didn't say at the beginning of the sermon was earlier this week, I I flinched again. I did this a while ago. I flinched and I bit the end of my tongue off. Oh, man. I feel like I sound sound like sloth from um, Ice Age. Hey, guys. Um, anyway, 
So we made it through. Uh, You know, we got through the passage. Hopefully that wasn't too bad listening to my, uh, you know, half of a tongue trying to speak through a cold, right? Um, Anyway, let's pray. Let's thank the Lord now. God, we thank you that um, you are the bread of life. You are the one who sustains us. You are the one who died so that we can live and be brought into eternal life. And not just eternal, like going on forever life, but eternal, the good life, being connected to you. And, um, you know, I pray that as a church, we would live into this reality in every decision that we make and uh, how we are a church family. And we thank you that we are your people that you've organized us and that you provide for us and that you love us and you care for us and that you are our Savior. Amen. <music>